You know, uh, this series is entitled today, Recalibrate. And as I think about our lives, I think about all the COVID drama, the political drama, all the stuff going on in our nation as a whole. Things are accelerating so quickly. I know Steph, we were talking last night, and she's like, has there ever been a time that this many events and this many things happened at once to just bring such a change? And, uh, and I said, like, man, I really don't know. I mean, I'm sure, you know, whenever World War I broke out, World War II, everything shut down, everything was focused on that. But now it's difficult to focus on one thing, right? You're, you're focused on multiple things. You're focusing on whether it's, you know, what's going on in our nation, you're focused on what's going on in, with your own health or your family or your loved ones, or maybe you've suffered loss of a loved one, or you're focused on maybe your own financial life and how are you going to make it, how are you going to survive. I know even with students it's different because just think, I know we have, still have one Pierce in college, and, you know, he said, Dad, it's just difficult doing this whole thing, you know, online. I do a lot better in person. So everyone is facing change. And I want to pray today as we get ready to go into a story that Jesus shared with us about the greatest change of all. And that is, how do we move from lost to life? How do we move from death to life? How do we move from lost to life? So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for everyone listening today online and in the service. I just give you praise that you are such a loving God. I thank you that you love us just the way we are, not the way we think we should be or anyone else thinks we should be. That you truly are the value giver and you set the highest standards. And those standards are not works or performance. Those standards are grace, faith, hope, and love. So minister to us today, Holy Spirit. Let it not be a man, but let people move from lost to life today. Let them move from death to life. Father, let People be stirred in their spirit to be more intimate with you, to be more open and transparent with you so that we can grow like never, ever before in everything we do. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Everyone said, come on. Everyone said, thank you, guys. Amen. You know, as I look at this, and I think about just one of the greatest stories ever for going from being lost to life. Now, we can look at lost different ways. One way the Bible says, even talks about it down here toward the end of this chapter, uh, and, it, and it is this, basically, lost is whenever, you know, every one of us are born into this world. Because of the, sec the fall of Adam and Eve, the Bible says we are all born into sin and death. So we're all born sinners, and, and our spirit is abiding in a state of death. But the Word of God tells us in John chapter 3 that we can enter into the kingdom of God but how do we do that? We've got to enter in through the kingdom of God by being, what, born again. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said, well, how can I be born again? I'm old, and my mother has been deceased many years. And Jesus began to explain, you cannot even see the kingdom of God without being washed by the water of the word. As I think about that, and I think about what God thinks and what God sees compared to what we think and what we see is so different. I mean, it just blows me away when I think about John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But you can't have a word, Jay, without what? First, a thought. <laughs> what if it was like this? In the beginning was a thought, and the thought was God. And the thought became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Now, we know he is the word. He is the raiment, right? He is the promise of the word. He is the logos, the, the, the sum total, the person, personality, and purpose of God manifested here with us. But as we think about when God created the worlds, and he looked out and he said, let there be light. Where did that word come from? Where did that confession come from? It came from the mind of God. As God thought it, he spoke it. And think about this. That was never light. Who, who knows what light is? We didn't, but God did. How could you name light? It's never been here before. But God named it because it's in his thoughts and in his heart. Then he tells us in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 55, he said, my thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours. And then he goes on over into that chapter, and he said, I will watch over my word to perform the thing for which I promised. And so many times, guys, when we look at things, we look at, okay, a better job, a, a spouse. We look at a better relationship. We look at better health. We look at better social means and influence and all that, better effectiveness, right? We look at all those things. But God thinks so much higher than the physical. God thinks so much higher than the material. God thinks so much higher than just what we see as significant and important. And so many times, not only are we lost far away from God where we've never been a believer, never been a child of God, but we can be a child of God and get lost in our own perfection. We can be a child of God and get so caught up in what, how we are performing. Are we doing it good enough? Are we spiritual enough? Do we pray enough? You know, do we give enough? Do we serve enough? Do we love enough? And we get so focused up in doing, doing, doing that we miss the point of being, being, being. You know, Parker and Pierce do not have to perform to be our sons. They are our sons. Why? They're born of us. They're of our DNA. Well, when you become born again, the Word of God tells you that you oh, says you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away and all things become new. So whether you're in a place where you've never come to Christ before and you're missing out on the highest thought of all that he has for you, eternity with him, heaven forever, can't beat that, right? That doesn't mean you're going to sit up there and watch a little short fat dude play a harp on a cloud. Bible says Jesus is coming back to recreate the heavens and the earth, and there'll be other things to subdue and to take over, and you're going to be active and a part of it. You're not going to just be sitting around. You're going to be active. You're going to be a part of it. You see, his thoughts, his ways are so much higher than ours. And I think one of the key questions that I get as a pastor is, whatever people, will, what happens after I die? Well, that depends on you. Yeah, but what's God got to say about it? Well, what do you have to say about it? Because he made it very clear that Jesus came not to condemn and judge the world, but he came to die for the world that we might be saved. And the only reason might is in the translation, right, is because it's our decision. Because he is a God of, that gives us a free will, just like he did Adam and Eve. Romans 5 says he's the second Adam that came, right? So he didn't come to give us the law. He came to fulfill the law. And he, did, he didn't give us something. He came to us and released something. That's why we're saved by faith through grace. Grace, that's Jesus. He is grace. Without him, you can't be saved. Grace is a free gift. It's unmerited, earned, earned. It's simply receiving. 
So you can be a child of God and be miserable. You can be a child of God and be far away, even to the point that you're just totally backslidden because maybe you've failed so many times or you have that perception of yourself and, and you beat yourself up over and over and over to the point you've lost the intimacy with the Father. You see, when I first gave my life to Christ, you know, you know my story. I was on drugs. I was partying. I was doing I tried to quit. I couldn't quit. And one of the reasons it took me to 21 to give my life to Christ was because I finally had just gotten to the point I knew I wasn't going to make it much longer if I didn't change. And I, I didn't want to disappoint God. I didn't want to disappoint my family. But I finally gave in and said, well, they might as well get disappointed. I got to try God. I've tried everything else. And I'll never forget that little Nazarene church on a Sunday night. You've heard me tell the story of the little lime green carpet runner and the little, the little altar area on that little hardwood floor. So I ran up with only 17 people in church that night, my mother, one of them, knelt down and gave my life to Christ. When I stood up, I could promise you, it was almost like I could see the sky through the roof. The sky was bluer and it was white, and I, I could just see it. It was wintertime, right? When I walked out of the church, man, I mean, it just looked like summer morning. It was beautiful. Everything looked different to me because I became totally different from who I was. My old nature, in other words, when I was born again, my spirit, who I really am, was dead. But like Jesus told Nicodemus, when I received the word and the water and I received faith in Christ, what happened? My spirit, who I really am, was reborn and alive. And God said he makes our spirit in his own image and in his own likeness. Have I made them both male and female, not to sit around, but to go forth and to subdue, right? To be in charge of fish and sea, the fowl of the air, and everything that crawls on the earth, anything. We have authority as sons and daughters of God. But what amazes me, the most important thing we have is our intimacy with God and with Christ, becoming who he designed us to be and called us to be. But it's so easy to get focused on subduing and conquering and dealing with the, with the elements around us that we miss the thoughts of God. So today I want to take a few minutes before we go into baptism, and I want to, I want to talk to you about how God, what's, what's God think about you and I? How does he think about us? Because if we're going to truly recalibrate our lives, and I believe it's for Christians as much as anything else, we have a wonderful new members class that will be introduced to you in a couple of weeks, and there's six families. But, you know, we were running 28 to 30-plus families in new members uh, up until that time. And someone said, well, maybe, you know, we just got six. And I said, no, that's seed. They're seed, right? Because we're, we're not going to stop because of COVID. Yeah, it's not what it was. It's a third of what it was or 20% of what it was before COVID. But every family is important. Every person is important. And we don't do it for the numbers, right? We do it for God and for those that God's called us to. So as we, today what I really want you to think about, guys, is this, is how does God see you? Because if you're going to move from being lost, whether you're totally lost and not born again, or you've just lost your way and you, you've gotten out of whack on your purpose, on your destiny, on your focus, I believe today will get you back in track. But here's the thing that I do whenever I feel my life getting out of control, whether I'm so busy or I'm focused on multiple things, I come back to the basics. Now, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to come back to my prayer life. 
Yeah, that's part of it. I'm going to come back and just really focus on the Word. Yeah, that's part of it. I'm going to focus on my attitude and my heart and be kinder and more loving to people. Yeah, that's part of it. But that's not the foundation. The foundation is three things, faith, hope, and love. And love has nothing to do with performance. 1 John 5 says, uh, 1 John 3 says this. It says that we can love, why? Because he first loved us. And when you and I, when we want to make a difference, when we want to change, when we, we want to recalibrate our life, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, the number one way to do is go back to the foundation. And what did Jesus say? About, I mean, what did Paul say? Faith, hope, and love, but the most important of these is love. Well, I used to take that, okay, I'm going to love God more. I'm going to love people more. I'm going to love my family more. I'm going to love, and I'm so focused on loving, it's all works. Instead of focusing on the love he has for me that I can't even comprehend. My mind can't even come close to comprehending the love of God. My thoughts are, can't be consumed with his love. It's more consumed with my perfection and how I can show my love. But I promise you this, when you go back to the foundation of love and you just die again and let him wash over you and make time for him, oh, you'll pray. You'll worship, you'll get in the Word, you'll do all that, but it has to go from the foundation. And that's what I do when I feel myself getting out of sorts, off track, too busy, whatever it might be, or potentially being offended or hurt. What do I do? Or get offended because, you know, the Bible didn't, Jesus didn't say you wouldn't be offended, right? But, it, but, but don't stay offended. So my goal is never to be offended more than 24 hours. So I'll get offended and get mad, kick, scream like you, maybe say a few words that's, Maybe a lot of words that are not in the Bible, let's say. <laughs> then I'm like you. I repent and humble and feel bad and feel sad. And then I say, okay, my fight's over. It's yours, God. I'm going to love them anyway, just like they are. Not the way I think they should be. But I'm going to love them just like you love me. And it never fails, no matter what situation that happens, in business, church, ministry, whatever, when I see those people again, I have nothing but love for them. Because I gave it all to God, I had to go back to the foundation of faith, hope, and love. So today, as we recalibrate, I'm going to just share one of the greatest parables in the Bible. They're all great, but this is a, one of my favorites about the loss, about the, the son, right, the prodigal son. So let's get into it here. Look at me in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. So Jesus is starting to tell this parable. Jesus continued. There was a man. Now, in the New King James, it says certain man. So there was a certain man who had two sons. <clears throat> the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate or my inheritance. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all together, all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began, <clears throat> and he began to be in need. Hmm. So he went and hired himself out to, as a citizen of that country, who, to a citizen of that country, who what? Who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs, we call them in eastern Kentucky, slop. You can call them pods if you want, but it's slop. It's a little bit of everything left over, right? The pods that the pigs were eating, 
but no one gave him anything. So I think we need to recalibrate how we see this story if we're going to move from being lost to life and recalibrate, you know, where we're going and what we're doing and our focus, our purpose, and our identity. And we need to focus on what Jesus focused on in this story. So many times when we tell this story, we know it begins with a certain man, a father, who had two sons. And we often, it's even called what? The prodigal son. The whole, the whole uh, deal is called the prodigal son. And so, so we get that, but here's the thing, guys. That's not what Jesus was focused on. The son knew how bad he was. He knew how he blew it. The son eventually figured out how awesome it was to be redeemed totally. But it still wasn't about him. Because if it was about him, you'd go, oh, that's awesome. I observed it. It's cool. I'm glad that happened for him. Jesus told the story for you and me. He told the story for 2,000 years in the future so that you and I would never miss the Father's love. What he thinks about us, what he says about us, what he proclaims about us, and what he does over and over and over again for anyone who will keep coming to the Father. So this story is not about, you know, uh, it's not about the son and him being, you know, his character getting straightened out and, and him being redeemed from his sin. Yeah, that all happens. That's good. But really what it's about, it's about the son discovering the depth, uh, a depth, not be, a de another depth of the father's love. So this story is really about the father in the story and about how he graciously loves both sons. I'm not going to get into the second son, but remember, he stayed, but when, the, when the, the, first, the youngest son came back after squandering everything, I'm going to give you a little end of the story and then go back to the beginning. When all that happened, what happened? He was over there mad, and he's like, and the father says, son, what's wrong? And he says, well, you're over here throwing a party for him. He squandered everything. You gave him your signet ring. You gave him this and that, and I've been here serving you. In other words, I've been serving and slaving for you. But see, while he was doing that, he was growing future inheritance, and that was his choice. But he also still had his full inheritance intact. The father hadn't removed anything from him. The only thing that changed was the perception of the older son about his father's love. You see, he measured the father's love based on how he treated his little brother. Instead of the love he had given him and continued to give him. And that's when the father said, we're going to celebrate. And the reason we're going to celebrate because my son was lost but now he's found. And I believe today is going to be a day where many are found. Does anyone else believe that with me this morning? 1 John 3, 1 says this. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know him. When you think about that, guys, that's what you are if you're born again. You're not just a servant, a friend, or anything like that. You are a child of God. You are family of him. And therefore, there isn't anything you parents wouldn't do probably for your sons or daughters. Imagine how much more and the attitude God has toward us. So we've heard the term prodigal, right? And when we hear the term prodigal, well, what, what does that word, that word mean? And, you know, it's very familiar to you of what it is, but prodigal means someone who leaves a better way of life to take a lesser way of life. Someone who leaves a better way that they're living right now to go to a lesser 
more destructive life. It also means lavish living and spending money you don't have or spending to all you have, being wasteful, being extravagant when you don't have the means to be extravagant. It has all that. In other words, you don't have responsibility and you're living for you and no one else. So we, we understand what prodigal is. And what I want you to understand, when this son, when he's leaving the father, you know, he already had a great life. So it wasn't like he needed to find a great life or he had to find wealth or he had to find love or he had to find influence. But basically what this son did when he told the father he was leaving in the Jewish culture, he said, Daddy, drop dead. What do you mean? Well, in a Jewish culture, the father would leave his inheritance. Normally it would be to the oldest son, and then it would be divided out some, the other 50%, but the oldest son would get the majority of it, and then he would really be in control of it. But this father gave it to both of them equally. So it was already favor and blessing on his life. But what I want you to realize is under the Jewish inheritance is you don't get that inheritance till the father takes his last breath, till he dies. But the father was so gracious to give the son what he asked for because he loved him so much, he gave it to him. And what did the son? He took it and spent it and squandered it. What did he just basically do? Say, you're dead to me, dad. I'm taking my inheritance now. And that was the message that it gave to everyone else. He was leaving a better life to go to an illusion, to go to another situation, another relationship, another marriage, uh, another, you know, drug dealer, another, you know, crazy situation, another something that was risky and consequential. Time after time after time, leaving behind the best life that God had for him. Now, in verse 14, we see that it says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. It's one thing to have a need when you have the means to meet the need, right? <laughs> but when you have a need, and there's no brother, cousin, friend, or any or other that's going to help you, and it's just you, and there's no government bailout, there's no welfare, there's no, it's just you, it's a whole nother story. And what happens is he saw this job opportunity, you know, Pig, pig, pig caretakers or whatever, pig feeders, come on over because nobody really wanted that job. It was a messy, stinky job. But think about this. For him being a Jewish man, that was the lowest of lows because the, under the law, they weren't even allowed to, to uh, eat pig or hog, right, because of the cloven feet. So it was what called unclean. So here he is doing an unclean job in an unclean situation. What? To an unclean animal, he couldn't even partake of if he gave him some of the pig with an unclean life. And he finds himself in a place that is so miserable to him. And it says he longed, in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's saying the pigs are eating better than me. The pigs at least have me to serve them. I have no one to serve me. But in my father's house, what? There's many servants. In my father's house, there's plenty of food. So the son wanted to return, didn't he? He wanted to return because he realized he was living this lesser life and left a better life. Now, whenever he decided to return, uh, as we think about that, he didn't care that he had broken the father's heart, or maybe he did, it doesn't really say. He, he didn't go back to be part of the family again. His motivation was hunger. 
His motivation was physical situations and how he felt and, and who he knew and the influence he had. It wasn't about reuniting with his father because he had already wrote that off. What father would accept him back as a son? But we'll read here in just a second what it says about it. When he came to his senses, I'll go to it, Luke uh, verse 17. When he came to his senses, what he realized, he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. See, he understood. He was one that was backslidden. He knew who God was. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. I say, before I get to that, the question might be, why would God allow us to stay in a pigsty? Well, first of all, it took some decisions to get yourself there. And there's times in our life God will give you what you ask for, even when it's not the best for you. Because we learn a whole lot more about what we fell at or what we missed than what we get right, don't we? And so it's important. He'll take his hand off your favor and let you get stinky, messy, and wallow in it. Because remember, if, if he was a God, not a God of his word, he could have just said, you're saved and that's it. But he's a God of his word. He wants you to reign and rule from a free will and, and from a place of strength being his ambassador. Not a servant, not a slave, not even a friend. He wants you walking in authority of your life, in authority of your destiny, in authority of the vision God has over you, in the authority of your future. He, that's what he wants for you, not to be a yes man or a yes woman. So sometimes you just have to figure it out. But here's the key. He's always there to receive you, but some never figure it out. They just get more and more in their own wallowing and self-pity and totally miss out on what God's plan for their life is. So we see that when you're thinking about his father, let's think about him again here. And maybe some of you are like that right now. You're thinking about the Father God as I'm talking. You're thinking about the way it used to be. Or maybe you're thinking about the way it could be. Maybe you're thinking about, man, I wonder if that whole love thing is true. You know, whenever Steph gave birth to Parker or Otis, it's like, you know, you're always concerned. I mean, we'd never been parents, right? And we're like, man, I hope I, hope I don't fail this kid. I hope I... I love him. I hope, I mean, God, help me love him no matter what that I do. Man, my mom was loved me and was crazy about me. She'd die for me, help me to have the same feelings. And boy, I, I was kind of fearful. Like, I know I love him, but man, will I really be what I need to be, the best I could be for him? And then, man, once he came and I held him in my arms, there was my whole heart expanded to a love I'd never known. And that's the easiest way I can describe it. It was a love that I'd never experienced receiving even though I got total grace and love from my mother and had a loving family and a loving wife, I, I didn't even, wasn't even in the hemisphere of what happened when we held Parker for the first time. Well, then a few years later, two years, two and a half years later, she has Pierce, and, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm so crazy about Parker. Lord, what am I going to do? Because my capacity was limited to what I knew and what I thought. And I thought, man, how am I going to love another kid like this? I, I want to love him with all my heart. I want to love him as much, and I don't ever want to be a parent that has favorites. But when we held Pierce for the first time, 
my love went to a whole other hemisphere and expanded beyond what I ever thought or imagined. It expanded beyond what I could ever believe. That's love. And so what I want you to encourage you is you say, well, how can I love God like this preacher's talking about? How can I love a God that so graciously gave us himself to me? I don't deserve God. Why would God want me? Why would God want a mess like me? I've lied to him. I've cheated. I've done all this stuff. Why would he care about me? I've been bad to other people. I've been this or that. And, you know, here you are, you know, poor little old sick you, right? You think you're the big VIP sinner. I've been on the deathbed with deathbed with men and women later in their years that were way worse sinners than all of us in this room could ever be put together. It didn't feel there was any hope for God's love. But as soon as they accepted it and said the words, love and tears flooded their heart and their life. And you know what they always say? I wish I'd done this sooner. So I don't care how big, I do care, but no matter what you think about yourself or no matter how you see yourself, God sees you totally different. He doesn't just see your potential. He sees your beginning and your end. But it's still your choice. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to handle it? So this young man, when he was thinking about this, he was thinking, man, how can my father accept me? Accept me? Says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. This is what he's telling his dad. He's preparing his message. He's preparing his speech. Here's what I'm going to tell dad when I show up. You know, I'll get one of the servants. Say, I don't know if you remember me. Been gone a while, but I'm, I'm the son. But I'm coming as a servant. I don't expect anything special. I just want basically what you servants are getting. So he's preparing his heart. As he's preparing himself uh, to earn and to work, just not even to get back to the place he was with God or with his father, but just to be in the kingdom, just to be in the family, just to have some of the reward and live off some of the spoil. As he was preparing his heart, as he was preparing his mind, the picture was totally different when he came and approached his father. This always chokes me up when I read this. Look at verse 20. It says, when he... So he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. What I want you to get out of that is the father is always looking for you. He was looking for you before you were ever born. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, Whom he has saved and called, not according to your own works, but according to his what? His, whole, his own promise, his holy calling in Christ before the world began. Before the world began, God knew you. Before the world began, God called you. Before the world began, God laid out a plan for you, for your life, and to have the right foundation. And what I want you to realize is he knows all about you. Matthew's gospel said he knows the number of hairs on your head. You know, Hebrews uh, 4 says he knows not only your heart, but the intentions thereof of your heart. God knows everything there is to know about you. But what I want you to realize is we know very little about him. Because often we would treat someone the way we would treat them and not expect what the way God would treat us. Because that's what we know. That's our capacity. And he says when he was far away, he saw the sun far away. So I want you to realize where you're online or in here today, no matter where you're at, how far out there you are, God is watching you. And he's not watching you to judge you and say, oh, I'm going to bop them over the head when they get close enough. No, or I'm going to put them in jail for a while. No. The Bible says he ran to his son. Now, in the Jewish culture during the time of Christ and during the biblical times like this, you know, 2,000 years ago or less, 
Jewish men did not run. That was considered to not be dignified. You know, that was indignant. But the Greek word, there's two Greek words for run. One means to jog slowly, and one means to run at a crazy pace like a madman. I mean, just run without restraint. This Greek word here is the one running without restraint. Running without restraint, Jesus. I mean, God, the Father ran for the Son who lied to him, who betrayed him, who humiliated him, who made him look weak in front of his peers, weak in front of his family. I mean, everything you could imagine that a father could feel, this father had to feel. But God, you see, somewhere along the way, that father got the father's heart. I don't know if it was 15 minutes before the son showed up, a month or a year before, but somewhere along the way, he got just a little glimpse of the father's heart. And with throwing his dignity away, he ran. Now, not only did he run, look what else he did. He ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. What it's really talking about here is his compassion, his emotions. He, in the Bible, it's talking about kissing. Just, he, says, he just kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. And, you know, a lot of people thought he went around there and punched him out or had his servants whoop him and put him in a pit. No, he went out and lavished his love because he had compassion. The Father has compassion for wherever you are. No matter how angry you are or you have been, no matter how distant you are or you have been, no matter how many times you feel you've messed up or not, no matter how many people you've hurt or how many times you've been hurt, he still has compassion. And that compassion is to lavish his love on you and to throw his arms around you and to show it. The Greek word for compassion, goes, it, mean, it goes deeper to the heart, the very emotions involved. You see, in the Greek language, and I had to study this in seminary or whatever, it, it, the Greek language has seven tenses, and one of those tenses is arrowist. And arrowist is kind of like when we have past, present, future. Arrowist has a future with a past, present, future. A present with a past, present, future. And a past with a past, present, future. It's such a descriptive language. It's more descriptive than any language that we've ever known, than Hebrew or anything, or even the Aramaic of what Jesus spoke. It's the most descriptive language. It goes so many layers deep to the heart of the Father. So as we look at that, it's important to recognize what? The son still hadn't repented. He just showed up. The son hadn't repented, but the father was looking for him. The son hadn't repented, but the father had compassion. The son hadn't prevent, uh, hadn't, the, the son hadn't whatever repented. But what happened? The father, I get so excited. The father did what? The father ran and lavished his love on him like a fool. He ran like a schoolyard kid. He threw his arms around him, and he slobbered all over him. I'm sure, you know, if I did that to my boys, they'd probably punch me. Now, we'll hug, but, you know, the kissing thing, no. But not this dad. Not this dad. Even before he uttered one word about repenting, or even before he said he was sorry, I don't know, you may be like me. I said I was sorry to God all the time before I ever repented. But sorry doesn't get it. Sorry just means you stay in that sorry pig pen longer. Repentance means that you change your way. You change your direction. Then when you change your direction, your behavior and stuff starts to follow, but you gotta first make a decision to change your way, to change your direction. Since we look at this, I think the scripture of Romans 9, 
verses 15 and 16 in the Amplified translation. It says this. It says, I will have mercy on him whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion, pity on him who I will have compassion. So then God, so, so then God's gift is not a question of human will, human effort, but of the, God's mercy. It depends on not on one's willingness nor or his strenuous, ex, exer, strenuous exertion as in running a race, but on God having mercy on him. You know, there was a story that relates this in Barcelona, Spain, many years ago, and there was this significant national race, and one of the runners had pulled a hamstring or something, had fallen down and finally trying to get up and trying to limp to the finish line, and this man, crazy man, ran out of the crowd, forced his way through security. They, they tried to stop him, couldn't. He runs, he grabs a young man and puts his arms, and he walks all the way around to the finish line. Well, he wasn't a stranger. He was dad. He was willing to risk it all, go to jail, be killed, whatever, but I'm going to go rescue my son. That's where you are today, friend. God is here to rescue you. You've tried to fix it. You've tried to make it better. You know, you tried to work it out. You tried to think it out. But you could just try and try again. It won't change. It only changes when we surrender. It only changes when we say, here I am, Daddy. Take me as I am. I love that old him just as I am, Lord. Because that's what it is. Man, I tried to get myself ready. I tried to quit partying and cussing and jumping rope and smoking dope and all the other stuff. But it, as soon as I quit, somebody would have a new bag or something to snort or smoke or drink. It's free that weekend, but not after that. Many of you deal with that life, though, or have been, you know how it is. And I just know that was Satan saying, I'm going to just keep Dalton on the end. He thinks he's getting away, but here, let's see if he can handle this. See if he can handle that. And I finally just had to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had to get so sick of that hog pen that there wasn't one corner, corner to hide in, there wasn't one dry spot or one spot that wasn't drenched and stinking of pig and the feces and everything that comes in it. It had to come to the point that all I could do is look up out of the pen and say, here I am. Do what you can do with it. I'll probably mess it up. I'll probably blow it. I'll probably fail just like I have with my family and friends, and I'll probably be that guy, but you know what? I don't have a choice, that or die. Man, when I gave my life to Christ, like I said, everything changed. That doesn't mean I still have problems. I still have setbacks. Sure, but it's a whole lot different having problems and setbacks out here on dry ground with a father that loves you than in a wet, sloppy pig pen and no one cares. So it's up to you today. Here's my favorite scripture in the Bible other than John 3.16. Because this really explains what grace is. Undeserved, unearned grace is God loving us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us. So you're measuring, can I live this life based on your skill set? Based on your potential. But see, you don't think like God. You don't have his thoughts. He set this thing up. This game is rigged. Hebrews 11.3 says he framed the worlds with his faith, through faith, with his word, through faith. He framed, that word framed in the Greek means fit, finish, fashion. 
He set the world up for you right now. He set the world up knowing the hog pen you'd be in, knowing the mess you'd be in, knowing how far you'd be from Christ, knowing how lonely you would be, knowing how addicted you would be, knowing how hateful and mean you'd be, knowing how offended you'd be, knowing all those wretched things. But he framed the world, and this is your moment. Whether you're at home, the office, driving down the road, pull over. Or in your nurse room today, he set you up. Why would God let me stay in the hog pen? He didn't. He's throwing you a lifeline right now. He brought a messenger to you to tell you how much he loves you, how he thinks about you, what he thinks about you. Well, what do I got to do? Just surrender. The Bible says, in, in, should I do all this and that? The Bible says in, in Romans 10 that, if a man believes in his heart that Jesus rose from the dead, what? He shall be saved. If he believes it, confesses it. If you believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, you will be born again. You will be blood-bought. You will become a new creature. Your mind, Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is God's good, acceptable, perfect will. What does that say? You're on that path now. Your spirit is new, it's perfect, but now you're going to start that process of getting a brand new mind on top of a brand new spirit. John 3, 17 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, right? So that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. Then finally, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins to God, he will keep his promise and do what is right. He will forgive us for sin. He will forgive our sins and purify us from all wrongdoing. Where are you at, man? I mean, aren't you tired? Of, I mean, man, I don't know about you, but dude, for years I hated myself. You know, it all started out fun, but for years I was miserable. I couldn't even go fishing without buying something and getting high. I couldn't even go play sports without being high because it wasn't fun. Yours may not be drugs. Yours may not be alcohol. Yours may be the drug of sex or the drug of influence or the drug of performance, the drug of, you know, perception. Your perception is your reality right now, but if you'll repent, God will give you a new perception. He'll give you a new reality. Well, you know, when I get home, I'll check with my partner and see. Honey, your partner can't save you. And, and, and they, they can't lose you. But, but what if they don't agree? Well, so what? You can go to hell with them if you want to. What if my buddies at school think I'm an idiot? Well, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and you'll have thoughts and things that will blow your mind that you'll probably be able to love them even if they don't like you anymore. You'll be dealing a whole new realm of everything. The Bible says you'll have peace that will pass your own understanding. What about my boss or my employees? Or Who cares? I bet if they were sitting here, they'd, be the, they'd beat you up to the altar. Don't be like the older son. Judge what the value of what you have based on what the father gives someone else. 